0: Good thing we don't put this online, so they will never find out I, I said that, right? Well, good morning. I, uh, I don't think, I'm pretty confident, that, that that bumper video is not gonna be requested by those who put together Valentine's Day advertising. Uh, although I would say that uh, a lot of the guys in the room are probably wondering, what what exactly are we doing on Valentine's Day? Like why, why do I have to spend $100 on flowers and $75 to go out to dinner and $30 on chocolate and $10? Like you're adding all this stuff up and you're like, why, why are we doing all of this? This sounds like a big scam. It sounds like a big lie. And I'm gonna let you debate that uh, outside of these walls. Maybe you can talk about it at Grace Groups tonight. Uh, But I will say this about Valentine's Day, the commercialization of Valentine's Day, at least it has some connection to its actual origin. When you think about some of the commercialization that happens, like the commercialization of Christmas, Christmas, as we know as a church, is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And the commercialization of that has given us Santa Claus, like there's no connection there. And uh, the commercialization of Easter, the celebration of the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. And somehow commercialization has given us the Easter bunny. Like there's there's no connection there, although I enjoy marshmallow peeps. there's no there's no connection. But with Valentine's Day, yes, that's been commercialized, I understand that. but There's at least some connection to its origin and to the person that it was originally even about, St. Valentine. So maybe you know that story, maybe you don't. If you've already heard it, just bear with me. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but in 270 A.D., there was an emperor, an emperor of Rome called Claudius, and he was having a hard time recruiting men for his army. He had all these visions and goals, and aspirations of these military campaigns, and he couldn't get guys to sign up. And his conclusion was not, uh, they're not interested in my ongoing wars. His conclusion was, they're too attached. These guys are too attached to their wives. They're too attached to their children. And so he made marriage and engagement illegal. He banned it. That was uh, that was his... Uh, conclusion to how to solve this recruitment problem for his his army. And a priest by the name of Valentine continued to do weddings in secret. Well, he eventually got found out, he got discovered, he was arrested and put in jail. And on February the 14th, Valentine, wasn't saint then, but Valentine, this priest Valentine, uh, was executed. He was beaten to death with a club and then decapitated. Happy Valentine's Day. There you go. That's how we got this day. Now, there were some other things in the 1300s that moved uh, this, uh, this anniversary date of this guy's execution into something a little bit more romantic that we express today. We'll talk more about that tonight at Grace Group, but uh, that's where the the origin of Valentine's Day comes from. And I honestly, I don't, I don't care if you celebrate Valentine's Day, don't celebrate Valentine's Day. Uh, I will tell you this, guys: it is tomorrow. In case you didn't know, it is. If it snuck up on you, Here, here's what I do care. I do care that you understand the truth of the origin of February 14th, because I think there's this big lie told about Valentine's Day in our culture, that if you don't have romance in your life, you know, especially on a day like tomorrow, if you don't have romance in your life, then somehow that means you are a loser. That's the message that gets pumped throughout our culture. If we're telling the truth about Valentine's Day, and you understand the origin of that, I think it would be a day for us to celebrate the importance of marriage. The emperor told the people of Rome to stop getting married. You want to hook up? Fine. You want to shack up? Fine. Just no more commitment to marriage. And there were young couples who said no, that's not right. Valentine said, no, that's not right. In fact, he was willing to die rather than ignore God's standard and God's design for marriage. And I just think that's something that we should celebrate, something that we should honor and, and look back on and, and, uh, and understand that the, the commitment of marriage matters. And here's a guy that believed it. Last week, we went back to the beginning, back to the creation story when when God created everything and everything was perfect, including His design for our bodies as male and female, His design for marriage in a relationship between one husband and one wife, His design for sex and sexuality to be enjoyed in that covenant, relationship of marriage, and we saw that God's design was perfect, that God's design was good, and then sin entered the world and corrupted everything with a lie. The lie that we discovered or or looked at last week was this, that we can be our own God. We can be our own God, and we can draw our own boundary lines. We can set our own limits, and there will be no consequences. If you missed last week, you can go back, you can watch it this afternoon or this week on our website. But last week we focused on the origins of the big lie. This morning what I'd like to do is expose some of the lies that have been spawned out of that original lie. What I'd like to do this morning is give you the truth, and then hopefully that truth will shine this exposing light on some of the lies that we see in our culture. When I talk about truth, I am referring to God's Word. I'm not talking about the truth according to Twitter or the truth according to Facebook or the truth according to YouTube. And I understand that it's very possible that when this sermon gets posted that it could get pulled. Uh, It's very possible that when we get to the end of this that there's going to be some kind of uh, attachment to it uh, that could get posted, and that's fine. I think it's important that we talk about the truth, and even if it gets labeled misinformation by the world, we'll deal with that. Hebrews 6.18. I have two verses that are going to kind of be the foundation for this particular sermon. Hebrews 6.18 says, God did this. This is referring to a promise that God made to Abraham. That he, would have, that he would bless Abraham with many descendants. And God kept that promise. Even though Abraham and his wife were 100 years old and well past childbearing years, God provided and performed a miracle in their lives and kept that promise. And that's what it's referring to. God did this, kept this promise, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is, listen, impossible for God to lie. Underline that in your mind. It is impossible for God to lie. God only tells the truth. John 8, 44 says, He, referring to Satan, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar. He is the father of lies. The original lie told in the garden, he's the father of lies, and all these lies that we're going to talk about today have been spawned out of that. Here's what I want you to be able to leave with today, and we're going to, we're going to dive into a lot of scripture today. I've got a lot of resources on the website, a lot of resources on the digital notes, uh, because this is not the this is not the scripture according to Mark I, I want you to understand this is God's word and I want you to leave here today understanding this simple truth that God only tells the truth and Satan only tells lies. you me we are not the author of truth you get that right we we don't get to be the author of our own truth but we do get to, to, to decide who we will believe. God only tells the truth. Satan only tells lies. And you and I get to decide who we're going to believe. pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Uh, I, I am going to say that the things that we're going to talk about specifically today may be awkward or uncomfortable. And I made you a promise last week. I intend, with all of God's help, to keep that promise to give you a full measure of truth and to give you a full measure of grace. Let's pray and ask that God would help me and us to do that. Lord, I thank You uh, for this opportunity, and as we dive into Your Word today and we see the truth that You have given to us and shine the light on uh, the lies that have been told in our culture, uh, that we would be able to discern very clearly between the two. And I pray that as followers of Christ that we would choose to believe the voice, Your voice, of truth. I also pray, Father, that uh, as I'm communicating today, that you would, uh, in my demeanor, in my tone, in, uh, in even the words that are said, uh, that your love and your grace, your, your desire for us to have a life that is full of satisfaction and contentment and joy and, and a confidence in our identity, this is, these are the things that you want for us, and they can best be found in your design for life, and I pray that that would come through. And everything that's said in Jesus' name, amen. The way I set this up is I'm going to read the truth from God's Word, and then we're going to use that as like a, a beacon light or a flashlight uh, to shine and expose some of the lies that are told in the world, in our culture. So we're going to start with Matthew chapter 5. I figure, well, let's jump into the deep end of the pool of awkward conversations. We're going to start with pornography. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Probably not a shock to people sitting in a church that God says adultery is not okay, that it's a sin, that it's wrong, that it's outside the boundary lines for marriage. But then Jesus expands this and says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our culture is trying to promote this this lie uh, that pornography is not a big deal. In fact, uh, they would often say that it is good, that it's healthy and acceptable, when the reality is, even from a practical standpoint, uh, that God, you know, God knows what is best for us. He knows what is best for marriage, and He knows what His design is for intimacy. And pornography destroys all of that. It destroys intimacy. It reduces, really, it reduces sex to this base action. And uh, just a, 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 nothing more than pleasure between one body and another and it rewires the brain into addiction. It's not harmless, and it's not normal. Pornography offers this illusion of intimacy, but it's not real, and it creates an unrealistic expectation. And when that unrealistic expectation uh, gets introduced into a marriage that's supposed to be built... On intimacy, real genuine intimacy, it, it breaks all that down and destroys it. And it creates real problems in real relationships. Pornography is one of those things where uh, even talking about it in a setting like this, I'm sure for some is is uncomfortable. It's super uncomfortable if it's something that maybe you have or are struggling with, or, or even have, if you would say that, yeah, I, I would, that this is an addiction issue. Uh, if, you would, if you would say that, but you don't know who to talk to about it, and you don't know where to start to, to change that, um, I put some Bible plans, some resources in the digital notes, um, also on the website, on our page that I think are really great places to start. Now, there are uh, Christian, uh, Christian counselors that offer therapy specifically for sex addiction. And if you need help uh, getting connected to something like that, let me know. Or you can look that up online if you don't want anyone you know in, in this context to, to know that you're struggling through that. We'll talk about that later. Uh, as far as you're, you're, you're not the only one who who may be dealing with this. And um, if you need help, then you, you need to ask for help. So there's resources on there. But when I say, when we read what Jesus said about lust in the mind and how even that is sin, it doesn't match up with what we hear in the culture, is it? What we hear in the culture is, you can look, just don't touch. Nothing wrong with looking. And Jesus says, nope, that's a lie. And uh, when you hear things and see things in our culture that don't match up with what Jesus said, remember this truth. God only tells the truth. Satan only tells lies. You're not the author of truth, but you do get to decide who you're going to believe. Next one. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18, and I want you to hear the specific words that are being used in verse 18, the wrath of God. When we talk about wrath, do you think, uh, do you think good thoughts, or is this intense anger, intense discipline? Probably the latter, right? You don't think, uh, you know, when you think of wrath of God, you don't think, eh, not a big deal. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness. Does that sound positive or negative in a spiritual sense? It's negative, right? And wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Again, this verse kind of sets the stage for what we are about to read about. So whatever follows this is not in a positive light. That make sense? Not in a neutral light. It is in the light of God sees these things as wicked and godless. Here we go. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Those who deny the existence of God are without excuse. Because if you take an honest look, at the world that God has created for us, and the complexity of God's design, uh, you you have to have more faith in uh, in a theory of evolution than you do in in really in the creation uh, or or the design of a, of a, di- a divine creator. I it mean, just it makes more sense to believe when you look at the complexity of of, of our universe down to the micro level, even. Anyway. Verse twenty-one. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. In their thinking, watch what happened became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Hearts began to harden. When you deny the existence of God, something happens in the spirit, in the mind, where uh, thinking uh, becomes futile, and a heart becomes hard. You can't see spiritual truth. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Exchanged the glory of Im- the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So, idol worship. Therefore, the next step, we're going we're to continue to digress spiritually here as this chapter goes on. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity. Isn't that interesting? So we step away from the, this uh, honoring God as the creator and submitting ourselves to his authority and this, uh, we worship something else other than God. One of the things, one of the first things that is affected by that is sexuality. Isn't that interesting? Sexual impurity. For the degrading of their bodies with one another, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped, served, and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And it didn't stop there. Because of this, it goes down farther. God gave them over to shameful lusts. That doesn't sound neutral to me. That doesn't sound uh, glorified or celebrated to me. Shameful lust is a pretty specific definition. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. It's really, really hard, I would argue impossible, to make the argument that God somehow is neutral on this issue of homosexuality, or that we should celebrate it. And yet, that has happened even among mainline churches. You can go into any city and walk the streets, and you will find uh, mainline churches that not only can condone and accept, but celebrate the homosexual lifestyle. Furthermore... Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. So we start with sexual impurity, then it turns into this shameful lust. Now we're at this depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. I think that's where we are at as a culture. We're on the doorstep of things that uh, are just even more disgusting than, than we would want to say out loud. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder. Uh, if you skip down to verse 32, although they know God's righteous decree and those who do such things deserve death, watch this, they not only can continue to do these very things, they approve of those who practice them. they celebrate it. The lie that has penetrated our culture, and sadly even into some churches, is that homosexuality is an immutable, genetic reality that we can't help, rather than a conscious choice of behavior. And there's definitely a, a stark contrast between what the culture says about it and what God says about it. And we see this digressive nature of sin where it gets worse. And it says here about doing things that ought not to be done. But that's what happens. When when we draw our own boundary lines, what's to stop us from moving it a little farther out when we bump up against the one that we drew? Nothing. They keep getting moved. Whatever the next desire is, it keeps getting moved. Why, who's to say? Now, I think still most people in our culture would say that pedophilia is wrong. I think most people would. Not everyone, but most would. But who gets to say that? If we get to draw our own boundary lines, who, who, who gets to say that pedophilia, that bestiality? I think most people would say that that's not okay. But why can't I marry my dog? If I get to draw my own boundary lines, why can't I move the boundary line to that? Who has the right to set any limits on our desires? You see the problem? When we get to establish our own limits and draw our own boundary lines. And I understand that that doesn't match up with what we hear and see in our culture. But I want you to remember that God only tells the truth. Satan only tells lies. You and I are not the author of truth. But we do get to decide who we're going to believe. There are some uh, resources, again, on the website. Maybe that's something, same-sex attraction is something that you struggle with and you're not sure what to do with it, you're not sure where to go to get help with that. Um, And I've some resources on on the website and on the digital notes that may be helpful. Let's go to this one. You'll notice as we go through these, This pattern that that the Bible has a lot to say about our sexuality. I don't know if you knew that. I know it's not a topic we like to talk about, but the Bible has a lot to say about it. Hebrews 13.4, go ahead and look at that. Hebrews 13.4, marriage should be honored by all, the marriage bed be kept pure. Why? Because God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Here's the lie that gets told in our culture. If you're not content, if you're not satisfied in your marriage, if the Valentine's Day romance is dead, then you deserve to be happy, and you should go and, and, and find satisfaction somewhere else. It's the lie that's told in Hollywood, in entertainment, in music, uh, throughout our culture, you deserve to be happy. Just go find love somewhere else. According to Hebrews 13.4, if the grass looks greener on the other side of the fence, you need to go water your own lawn. In fact, Proverbs 5 says exactly that. Uh, they use a the, a, a different uh, word picture. Proverbs 5 15, drink water from your own cistern, your own well, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Now, if you're struggling to see what this word picture has to do with marriage and our Uh, sexual satisfaction Uh, well hold on a second let's be very clear what we're talking about verse 19 a loving doe a graceful deer may her breast satisfy you always may you ever be captivated by her love why be captivated my son by an adulteress why embrace the bosom of another man's wife you know what we're talking about now And this wasn't wasn't something that I just quoted from a secular romance novel. This is God. This is God's word saying, listen, if the cistern is dry, then dig deeper till you hit fresh water. Don't go looking in another well. It doesn't match up with what our culture tells us. God only tells the truth. Satan only tells lies. We're not the authors of truth, but we get to decide who we're going to believe. Here's the next one. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4, back to the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, we're going to kind of build on this one. We're going to look at a couple of different passages. I'll uh, we'll start with verse 3. It is not, uh, is it? It is, I'm sorry, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. That means to be set apart as holy to God. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That, you, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who don't know God. In this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Hold on to that truth. Right? You say, there's this, uh, this command, this challenge, to have self-control over our bodies. That they're not just uh, to be instruments of passion and pleasure. There's something more going on here. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse... Well, twelve talks about uh, everything's permissible and not everything's beneficial. Verse thirteen is a quote, a quote from the the culture of that day that said, "Food for the stomach, stomach for the food." That if it's an appetite, then then if it's a desire, then it's nothing more than a, than an appetite, and you should uh, you should pursue fulfilling that craving or that that appetite. That was kind of the the way that people in that culture thought. Sounds pretty familiar, right? But God, it says, will destroy them both, and then he changes it. Paul changes that phrase and turns it around and says, the body's not meant for sexual immorality. It's not just a base appetite, like I'm hungry, so uh, I, should, uh, I should meet that, that craving with some food. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord and the Lord for the body turns that around. Verse 18. oh let's, let's start. Uh, it talks about prostitution, which probably, I would think, uh, even even in most of the culture understands that that's not a good idea. Uh, but God says prostitution's wrong. Uh, if you n- unite yourself to a prostitute, and he even he even goes back here to the original creation to say uh, the two will become one flesh, and so when you unite. Uh, when you, when, if a person has sex with a prostitute, those two become one in the flesh. And if you are in Christ, then it says in verse 17, unite himself with the Lord, uh, is one with him in spirit. Why would you do that uh, in, in a spiritual sense, not just in a physical sense? Anyway, verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. This is really interesting. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now, this is very countercultural. what we're about to read. You are not your own. What? It says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The body's not meant for sexual immorality. We don't belong to ourselves, we belong to God. Well, what are the lies that, uh, that this particular passage shines the light on? Well, one is that sexual limits are bad and that uh, sex outside of marriage is good. If you have a desire inside of you, well, if, if it's a desire inside of you, it must be good, it must be right. No one can tell you how to love or who to love, what limits, uh, no one should be able to tell you what limits you should place on your own body. It's your body. Another lie that gets told that I think this exposes is that our bodies have to meet some cultural measure of perfection in order to have value. When we talk about uh, this idea that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, I think you can make an argument that that could apply to keeping our bodies clean and and, and doing our best to be healthy and making healthy choices that makes sense that would follow in line with what it means to treat our bodies well Uh, but this idea of when our bodies and and what our bodies look like when that becomes we cross the line and that becomes our identity well now we've got a problem spiritually when we tie those two things together, when we think that, that uh, what our bodies look like is, is somehow where we get our value, where we get our identity, then we're moving away from the gospel when we take it in that direction. We talked about that last week when we talked about uh, we are made in the image, we are a reflection of, of, of God, and that's where our value, that's where our dignity comes from. That's our identity. Another one is that when uh, we go back here to this food for the stomach, stomach for the food. This lie in our culture is that sex is just a physical act, nothing more. Like eating, if, if you've got this desire, it should just be treated like any other appetite. And I understand that what we just read does not match up with what we see in our culture. But God only tells the truth. Satan only tells lies. You're not the author of truth. We get to decide who we're going to believe. Here's the next one. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So right into the next chapter, verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about. They, they had some questions about marriage and about being single. Is it good, or it is rather, it is good for a man not to marry, to be single. If you go down to verse uh, 8. Now to the unmarried... To those who are single or widow, right? I say it is good for them to stay unmarried. Excuse me, as as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse twelve. To the rest, I say, I know the Lord. If a brother has a wife, uh, let me. That's not the verse I wanted. Um, oh, verse seventeen. He talks about. Uh, remaining in the in the condition that you are his point that he wants to make is this you are if you're single you're not a loser there are some there are some really important things spiritually uh, that could benefit you from being single you are able to uh, devote all of your energy all of your uh, your efforts into serving God and when you get married you You have to pay attention to your spouse. I don't know if anyone told you that before. But if you're married, you need to pay attention to your spouse. That's important. And it's right to do so. But if you're not married, then you don't have that obligation. And so you can put your energy and your effort into just serving God. And so from his perspective, what he's saying is there's a lot of value that can can come from a life of someone who is single. Now, he also says self-control is an issue uh and if uh, if that's something that becomes a spiritual issue where you don't you can't control yourself then yeah getting married is is better verse 2 go back to verse 2 of, of chapter 7 but since there's so much immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife what are we talking about we're talking about sex and likewise the wife to her husband the wife's body does not belong to her alone but also to her husband, in the same way the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. So we're to honor God with our bodies. We're to honor our spouse with our bodies. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come, come together again. Why? So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Do you get his point? Just the, pra- the practical part of this? Uh, premarital uh, uh, sex prior to marriage, sex outside of marriage. Uh, there's a really strong biblical case that that's not okay with God, that that is a sin. And one of the ways that uh, that that sometimes creates a, a, an issue for for even Christians is this cultural phenomenon, this shift that we've seen over the last however many years of cohabitation, of living together outside of marriage. According to the Barna Research Group, 65% of Americans believe it's not only acceptable, but actually a good idea to cohabitate prior to marriage. This one kind of surprised me, I, I guess. Uh, and it's, they also discovered 41% of practicing Christians said the same thing. And and you know I, I've heard the arguments. Uh, you know we're 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 just living in the same house. Uh, we're like roommates that are attracted to each other. You know I've heard I've heard the arguments, but I would say this: if I want to stay sexually pure, is that going to be easier or harder to do, if uh, if I? Go and have a hotel room alone with someone that I am trying to stay sexually pure with. It's probably going to be harder to stay pure in in a situation like that, right? Well, just, you know, you you take that and compound it into every single night. It's going to be really hard. Like Even if you could make the argument, uh, we are staying sexually pure, you're putting yourself into a situation where the, where's the guardrails? In that situation, how how do you intend to stay sexually pure in, in that every day, every night environment? Um, I think it's I think it's asking for trouble. And the the guardrail, the 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 standard that God is setting on uh, us, especially as believers, um, is sexual purity. That sex is to be reserved for inside the covenant marriage commitment uh, between a man and a woman. Um, so it's just, even if you could make the argument that we're not technically sinning, it, it's, still, it's still, I don't think, a good idea based on the goal of sexual purity or the boundary line that God has set for us. And I, I also don't know that it's a, a great testimony for our, for our faith. One of the things that I love about Ephesians 5, if you go there with me, Uncomfortable yet? Good, I am too. Ephesians chapter five. This is the this is the the standard guideline. Uh, this is where we've where we have I think the best laid out instruction for what a, a biblical marriage that produces everything that we want in a love relationship. How do we do that? I think most, if not all, of us would want uh, genuine love and satisfaction and contentment and uh, want to have a happy, healthy, strong marriage. I don't think most people wake up in the morning like, how can I ruin my marriage today? I don't think people think like that. So here's, here's how we can ensure that we can have a healthy, strong marriage. This is the template right here, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the, is the head, husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. It's the idea of following spiritual leadership. Now guys, listen. That is a whole lot easier for women, for wives to do if you're a good, strong spiritual leader in your home. A lot easier. If you're a lousy spiritual leader, you're just making it that much harder for them to fulfill what God is is calling them to do. So be a good spiritual leader, and you're going to make that a lot easier for your wives. Verse 25, one of the ways that we do that, uh, husbands, your responsibility. So if, if wives, if your responsibility in a healthy, strong marriage is unconditional respect, then the husbands would be unconditional love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You think about what Jesus did for the church he died. He gave up his life for the church. Well, that's a high bar of sacrificial love. And he goes on here to talk about making her holy and cleansing and washing her by the, with water through the Word. Um, in the same way, verse 28, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. Who loves, he who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, I love verse 29 because it says, After all, no one ever hated his own body. He feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. We are members of his body. Again, Paul goes back to the the origin, at creation of marriage. The origin of marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. A profound mystery. Listen, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. He reiterates that wives respect your husbands husbands love your wives. But there's also this testimony issue. So you want a healthy, strong marriage, here's the template, and that's going to benefit you. you, Your life's going to be better if your marriage is strong, right? So that's going to benefit you. But there's also this testimony issue that if we've got a strong, healthy marriage, that says something to the world about the gospel. It says something to the world about God's word that it's true. Right? When we get this right, when we live this out, the results are, yes, we're blessed. We have a stronger marriage, but it also communicates to the world. Yeah, what you've been trying isn't working. Well, what God offers, the design that God offers does work. We're proof of it. We're living it. We're enjoying it. We're loving it. I know that doesn't sound like what we hear in our culture, but God only tells the truth. Satan only tells lies. You're not the author of truth, but you do get to decide who you're going to believe one more Deuteronomy 22:5 Deuteronomy 22:5 It says this that a, that a woman must not wear men's clothing nor a man wear women's clothing for the Lord your God listen to this word detests anyone who does this. Now, I don't claim to be like an English scholar but the word detests is a pretty specific and strong word. I don't hear the word detest and think acceptable. I don't uh, hear the word detest and think neutral. Uh, I I hear that word, I read that word, and I think God has a strong distaste uh, of, of disgust towards this. Now, Here's what most likely will happen. Now, the good news is nobody, uh, I think I have like eight viewers on YouTube, so I'm not very popular online, okay? However, this is the the place on social media where it would have some kind of disclaimer that says that the verse that I just read you lacks context, right? That's That's what would be attached to it. Fine. Here's the context. Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, the first couple verses, sets the context for everything that follows, including that verse. Deuteronomy 4, hear now, Israel, the decrees the laws that I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you. Do not subtract from it, but just keep the commands but the Lord your God that I give you. And then it goes on, all the way through the one that we talked about um, in, in chapter 22. All these laws, all these boundaries, all these limits, God is saying, here's how you should live. The lie that this shines the light on is that you get to choose your own gender, you don't have to just accept the gender that you were assigned to, to you at birth. That's the phrase. And listen, I, I recognize that this, this particular one uh, is, is difficult because those who, and maybe, maybe even the rumor on the other side of the camera, those who struggle with this one, oftentimes with this struggle, with this gender confusion comes a feeling of isolation Uh, deep depression, a feeling of being unloved, unwanted. And so it's something that's deep and it's real and uh, something that I don't think it's helpful to just uh, pile on more shame because that's something that's already being felt. So I just want you to know that that's not my intent in bringing it up. My intent is not to pile more shame and make you feel worse about the struggle that you're in, but to genuinely help relieve that tension and do so in a way that's going to end up with something that will actually resolve it in a healthy way through a biblical worldview. So I have a lot of resources. If this is something that you struggle with, if this is something someone that you care about is struggling with, uh, there's some really good resources that I've put Uh, on the website, in the digital notes, some really good books uh, that address this this issue from a biblical perspective, and I hope that they will be helpful. And I understand it doesn't match up with what we're hearing. It doesn't match up with what we're seeing in the culture. But one more time, God only tells what? Satan only tells what? You're not the author of truth, but you do get to decide who you're going to believe. You know, last, last week I made that promise, I, I reaffirmed it today, that I want to give you a full measure of truth and a full measure of grace. And I hope my tone has been that today. Uh, I want to shine the light on a story in John chapter 8 that, that I think highlights Jesus' heart when it comes to these issues. In John chapter 8, there was a woman that the Pharisees apparently caught in the act of adultery, if you can imagine, drag her in front of Jesus. They don't care that they're humiliating her. Uh, All they care about is humiliating Jesus, and she's an end to a mean, or a means to an end. And so they they drag her in front of Jesus and say, well, the law of Moses says to stone such a woman who's caught in the act of adultery, and they're trying to create this uh, this scene in which he would be embarrassed. It says in, in John 8 that he Bends down and he, he starts to write in the ground. And, and he says to them, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone. And he continues to write in the dirt. and The older ones start to leave and the younger ones start to leave until it's just Jesus and this woman. And he stands up and he looks at her and he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, they're, they're all gone. And, and his response, then neither do I condemn you. But then he says, Now go. And leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And I think there's just this simple picture here of this full measure of truth and a full measure of grace in Jesus in this moment. And I think, I think there's this lie that, that even Christians have come to believe that if you're struggling with something, that, uh, that, that shame, that embarrassment, that, that you're not perfect and that you're struggling with something, with sin... Uh, that you have to do that alone. Because somehow you, you've got to make sure that uh, you keep it a secret, you carry around the shame of your past and and uh, keep it a secret as long as you possibly can so that no one ever finds out about it. Isolate yourself, pull yourself away from your church family if necessary because after all, they're a bunch of judgmental hypocrites at church. And it's a lie. Now, I understand that, You can find judgmental hypocrites in any church that you walk into. I understand they exist. But I want you to hear that that's not who we want to be. Here at Grace Fellowship, we want to live out this instruction from Galatians 6. This is who we want to be. Look at this with me, Galatians 6. If we're going to deal with sin, uh, we want to deal with it in this way. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if someone's caught in a sin, you who are spiritually mature should restore him gently. Now, there's, there's repentance assumed in this. And, and then there is, what do we do with the person who's caught in the sin? They repent. We restore them. The picture is not this wagging of a judgmental, condescending finger. It says, watch yourself, that you also may be tempted, carry each other's burdens. The idea of this humility Uh, and and gently restoring those who who fall into sin. So we see the the how it's to be done, but I don't want you to gloss over the fact that it should happen. Yeah, it's important to know how it should happen with gentleness and humility, but it should happen. It should happen in, in, in the sense that we should care enough about each other and love each other enough that that we're willing to step into one another's lives and and provide accountability, and to allow others into our lives to to be able to pray with us, and and hold us accountable, and, and, and help us through these struggles, and pray with us. We're not supposed to do this on our own. When you get isolated, when you feel like you're all alone in whatever struggle it is, whether it's something sexual or anything else, when you feel like you're all alone and you, and you have to fight these battles by yourself, you are putting yourself at an unnecessary disadvantage. So yeah, we want to be a place that offers a full measure of truth and a full measure of grace that Jesus offers us. I just, I've been around long enough to know and, and have watched when, when people... When people feel like, when they've, when they've stepped over the line, when they've broken the boundary, when they've broken the limit, one of the first things that I've noticed that happens is they start to pull away. They start to step away because they're embarrassed, they're ashamed. I'm just saying that's not the right thing to do with it. I'm saying we need, that's when we need our church family the most. Now, for that to work, that means we can't be judgmental, hypocrite, jerks, in dealing with it. We have to be compassionate, full of truth, full of grace, so that we can help each other along these struggles, because these struggles can be real and, and, and damaging, and, and we need each other. Does that make sense? I talked about God only telling the truth, Satan only telling lies, and I'll leave you with this question. Who are you going to believe What voice are you going to listen to? You going to listen to the voice of truth? From the one who loves you so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross in your place so that your sins could be forgiven, so that you could have everything that you want, a life of, of true joy and satisfaction and contentment and confidence in your identity, so you could have all of that you're gonna to listen to the voice of a liar who hates you and wants your life to be destroyed by sin. See, Jesus is the real Valentine that God sent to us to demonstrate his love. Isn't that what John 3.16 tells us? God loved us so much. He gave us his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Listen, human love, that's not the standard. Human love is inadequate. Human love is unreliable. Human love is only satisfied when it, satisfying when it is patterned after godly, divine love. Like we see in 1 Corinthians 13. I know you hear that at like every wedding. Have you ever stopped and thought about that divine standard of what love really is? If not, go back and read it today. God's love is the standard, not human standards and God's boundaries really are an expression of his love for us because it's the absolute best way for us to express and to experience the love that we all desire. We all want the same thing and God has designed a way for us, the best way for us to experience it and to express it.